back to Discourse from the Big Chair. Uh, I'm Steve Cuff, and joining me is Steve Coleman. And if you're Hello. asking yourself, what exactly is this? This is a Tears for Fears mini-podcast series. What we're doing is Steve Coleman is a Tears for Fears super fan. Me, I really wasn't that familiar with the band until a couple weeks ago. So what we're doing is we're going through each album. I'm listening to it for the first time. Steve's listening to it for probably the millionth time. And then we're having a discussion. And we're going in chronological order. And this is all going to come to a head in September when we go and see Tears for Fears live in Detroit. Home of uh, Marcella, Detroit. Home of what? Mar- Marcella, Detroit. What is that? She's the uh, other half of Shakespeare's sister. I, I did not know that. <laughs> <laughs> all kinds of trivia coming through here today. Okay, so... Last week, we, of course, talked about The Hurting, and it was a really interesting listen for me because it was it was totally not what I expected. And this week, we're kind of doing the big hit album. We're doing songs from the big chair. And this one was a little bit more of what I expected just because it has so many recognizable songs on it. But it also kind of threw me a few curveballs. So I, I would almost say this is both their most commercial album and so at times it's their most daring and sort of avant-garde and it makes me wonder what their record label was thinking like they their record label had to be a little concerned with some of the songs that are on here wow <laughs> and, and that's that right and, out of the way and hey and, and i'm not saying that because of the quality i i really enjoyed this record i really enjoyed it a lot i liked it as much if not more so than the hurting um but it, there's there's a few tracks on here, especially some of the B-sides for big singles where I'm like, holy crap. Like, I, I, did their record label even know they were putting these out as B-sides? Um, but we'll get into that. We'll get into that. Steve, tell me about Songs from the Big Chair. Well, uh, there's really um, – I would say that this is the universe's favorite Tears for Fears album. I think that to the – general novice um there's probably people out there that think that tears for fears just came out with songs from the big chair in 1985 and that's all they ever did Mm -hmm. um it's so um count me among those before i met you (laughs) yeah and you you and many other people um i think just because the album was such a big hit and such a big success and those singles were so big that um, anything they did before that or after that didn't really top it, at least commercially, even if they did have successful singles before and successful singles afterwards. Um, so this is really what put them on the global map. And um, just uh, looking at that album cover, which just the two of them, I think that when anybody thinks of Tears of Fears, it's just that image of these two brooding guys in black and white hanging out. Mm-hmm. Um, and... This was my intro to Tears for Fears. I think this was a lot of people's intro to Tears for Fears. I have a bit of an excuse just because, as I mentioned last week, I was an infant when this album came out. <laughs> so I was just going based off of whatever was in my parents' record collection at the time. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, this is um, – it, it's hard to talk about this album without like just talking about how big and how popular it was there definitely was a period before i really started doing my own research about tears for fears where i thought songs from the big chair was just a greatest hits record and it actually kind of is Um, it is in a lot of ways that's for sure yeah i mean over half of the album 
uh, over half the songs on the album were released as singles, and uh, at least three of those singles were massive, massive worldwide hits. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very easy to think, and even that that album title songs from the big chair kind of has almost this this like greatest hits compilation connotation yeah 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 sure i can see that too uh i'm not sure exactly what the title's referring to but it it does kind of conjure up like an image of yeah we're the we're the kings of 80s pop music and here we are on our thrones well well steve cuff would you like to know where the album title comes from i think so that was a good segue let's do it man where does the album title come from (laughs) the album title comes from the uh television excuse me the television movie sybil starring sally field as this uh, woman with, I believe it's 13 different personalities. It was a big hit TV movie. I think uh, Sally Field got a bunch of Emmys for it, or I guess just one, because she just acted it and she didn't like, direct it or write it or anything like that. But anyway, anyway. Um, so the title of the album comes from that movie. Like She, as a patient, her analyst always has her sit in this big chair, and that's where Sally Fields, Sybil, feels safest. It's where she can talk about her different personalities, and she's not worried about what the outside world thinks about her. So in relation to Tears for Fears... I think that The Hurting, at least, was a very big album for them in their homeland in the UK, mm-hmm. and I think there was a lot of pressure for them to follow that up, so I think that they were a little bit nervous, and I think they also were trying to figure out just who they were after they had sort of, like, purged all this teen angst in their first album. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think that they were a bit concerned that they were being taken too seriously or at least that they didn't have like enough of a sense of humor like they were just these two depressing guys who um didn't know how to have fun mm-hmm. didn't know how to cut loose which was all the rage in england back then i mean you know the cure uh, and the course. smiths and whatnot it that's that's a really popular way to be um but yeah you can you can kind of see on this album when i was listening to it you can definitely tell they were trying to sort of prove something you know really push themselves and and try and figure out who they were as musicians and as a band, and I, that definitely comes through. Yeah, and it sort of even going back to the title too, like how each of these songs is very, all the songs are very big and they're all very different. Um, like no, it, it, with the exception of uh, the uh, sort of prog rock suite that we have on the second side mm-hmm. of the record um every song is very has its own personality so it's like there's eight yeah. different personalities or maybe seven and a half <laughs> different personalities on this album mm-hmm. uh yeah that, that's actually in my notes i'm glancing at them right now and uh two of the remarks that i made was this feels like more of a singles collection than an album at times Mm-hmm. And it also feels like a live record more than a uh, like a, a typical album at times as well. Uh, but we'll get into that. Let's let's go ahead and jump right into the first single. So of course this is the first Tears for Fears song I remember hearing, um, <laughs> and it's it's not my favorite by them, but I definitely have a, a greater appreciation for it now. And this is of course Shout. Now this song, it's really interesting to me because this is a single from kind of an 80s band that often gets lumped in with other new wave acts and stuff like that. 
when they're clearly not, which is, and that's something that has been completely smashed now for me. Is this the, <laughs> Tears for Fears? They get lumped in with other new wave acts. They're not really a new wave act, but this is a song that was a smash hit single. You can't dance to it, and it's six and a half minutes long. <laughs> people how does do that try happen? to dance to it though i would love to watch i would i, I want to see like a supercut youtube video of people trying to dance to the song there's definitely um if i ever go like for example both steve cuff and i we spent a lot of time in milwaukee there's this club called mad planet and every friday night there's like their 80s dance party and i would always badger the dj to play just one tears for fears song and shout was always the song he would play the one of the least danceable songs yeah seriously i think from the 1980s mm-hmm. probably one of the least danceable songs at least as far as like pop songs that's ever been number one on the billboard charts mm-hmm. it's um it, it's also a very confrontational song so it, it's not very often that you hear a band like it's almost like they're directly addressing their audience. You know, uh, there's there's a lot of you, 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 you know, things like that. And bands don't don't like to do that because it, it's kind of like you're almost like pointing your finger at the audience and it makes them uncomfortable. So you don't see that a lot. And I think that's like lyrically, it's already a step above some of the stuff that we were listening to uh, last week. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, they're definitely coming out of the show. There's a lot more courage mm-hmm. and a lot more. There's uh, a lot more gutsy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, you, uh, when you're literally saying at the end of your chorus, "I'm talking to you," you know, it's it's very it's very gutsy. It's very confrontational. Uh, and like I said too, such an odd single choice, such an odd lead off track. Um, there's a lot of like just noodling and and things that I do not remember about this song. There's so many different like solos, things like that. Yeah. It's a very slow build too. Mm-hmm. Um, like it takes a good five minutes before the actual drum kit comes in, um, and that's like after the bridge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think my, some of my criticism from last week when we were talking about the hurting is I mentioned that it felt like sometimes they didn't allow the songs to breathe. You know, like they were just trying to cram as much as they could uh, into a few minutes, and it seems like more on this album. It's the exact opposite. There's just so much going on, and all of these songs are really long, really long. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but you know, I, I think they kind of learned that you, you can let things build up a little bit more, and you don't have to cram all of these layers into just you know two and a half minutes. You can really flesh the songs out. Uh, but yeah, this is a song that I didn't necessarily appreciate growing up or for most of my adult life. It's still not my favorite song on this record, but... I like it a lot more now. So, I, you know, making progress, Steve, making progress. Yeah. And, and for me, too, I mean, I growing up, this is like the one thing if whenever you tell somebody you're a fan of Tears for Fears this is like the only song they listen to besides maybe another song that we're going to be getting to shortly. Yeah. Um, so for a while, I grew very tired of it. And I know even when I go to see them live, like it's always the last song they play during the night. And by that point, you can tell they're just tired of playing the song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I've really grown a new appreciation for it, at least for the studio version, just because um, I don't know. Like it, like you said, it's like it's a very odd thing that it first of all that it leads off the album. Mm-hmm. It's the first thing you hear, and that it also was such a big hit. It's a very I think left field hit. Just the fact that it's six and a half minutes long, and mm. I mean, there are edited versions that do show up on the radio, but usually they play that full six and a half minute song. Sure, sure, yeah. 
And uh, just the uh, <laughs> and I think back to the music video a lot too. I don't know if you've seen the video. I have seen um, the video. It's uh, it's a lot a lot of children, if I remember correctly. Yeah, well, it's, it starts off they're uh, they're outside singing uh, by the by the ocean at uh, Dirtle Door. Wind blowing then, through their hair. Yeah, wind blowing through their hair. They got scarves on and coats and just hanging out. And then it transitions to an indoor studio jam session, sort of like something like, I don't know, like the All You Need Is Love that the Beatles did in that TV studio. I think it was that. Or was it Hey Jude? One of those two. One of those two. Where there's just hundreds of random people hang, or maybe not hundreds, but a few dozen people just sort of hang out yeah there's a lot of kids there's uh, there's one like elderly woman who's just clapping along to the rhythm and <laughs> so it's a very it's a very european music video mm-hmm. um and i know that for a while i guess mtv was sort of pressuring them or maybe the record label was pressuring them to reshoot the video <laughs> to make it more american make it more mtv friendly and by the time they got around to at least attempting to do it the song was becoming so popular so quickly that they had no choice but to put that video out. Yeah, I guess it probably didn't really matter at that point. Uh, But yeah, if I remember correctly, and I haven't seen the uh, video in a while, I think when we were first talking about this project, I went back and watched it, so maybe a few weeks ago. But yeah, I just remember like it it doesn't have that quick-cut, hyper-kinetic kind of music video style that was popular back then. Like There's a lot of longer takes, and um, it's just... It's it's not flashy. It's not sexy. And this kind of goes back to what I was talking about last week as well, where Tears for Fears, they're a great band. They're a very talented group of musicians, but they don't have that inherent like coolness or sexiness to them. And that kind of no, comes they through. Definitely don't. I mean, they're basically, they're, yeah, they're, they're standing around in front of the ocean on this cliff, and it's just kind of gray outside, and they're just, you know, in scarves and coats, and uh, it's not sexy. <laughs> Yeah, they just look like two schoolboys, two school lads. Yep, there you go. Uh, there you go. But I'm sure there's a community of Tears for Fears fans that would probably beg to differ, but uh, <laughs> ah, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> there's nothing visually appealing. Not really, no. Uh, but yeah, it's, it is it is a very, very odd choice for a smash hit single. But hey, I guess stranger things have happened. It's better than Pac-Man Fever, so good job, Top 40. You chose a good Just one. barely, though. Just, just a smidge, just a smidge. Uh, let's go ahead and talk about uh, the working hour. I'm gonna yes, turn this up. let's do that. Get that good uh, porn sax going. <laughs> what are you wearing, Steve? <laughs> I'll tell you what I'm in. Is it a silk robe, Steve? Straight leg jeans and a t-shirt. How does that make you feel? <laughs> That's funny. I'm wearing the exact same thing, plus a hoodie. Ooh, look at that. Wow. We really were men for each other. Okay, that's enough. Uh, It's a a cold night in Minneapolis. (laughs) It is. It is. It actually really is. It's like 50-something. It's weird. Yeah, it's a little chilly out, a little chilly. Anyway, The Working Hour. Again, this is another one of those songs where you're kind of scratching your head and, and you're like, okay, so... The first song is like six and a half minutes long, and it's a smash hit single, and it's it, it's catchy, and it's a little bit upbeat, so you, you kind of get that. This, as a, as a second song, it's like a complete change of pace, and this is where I started to feel like, okay, this, this doesn't quite feel album-ish to me. It, it feels like a collection of singles, and they kind of start to play around with 
the thing that they experimented a bit on with the herding where they're integrating all this saxophone. You kind of get this like smoky lounge music kind of feel. And I was wondering, do you, can you talk about maybe their influences and why this keeps popping up in their albums? Well, working now is a bit difficult because I feel like this is a holy Tears for Fears song. I can't really mm-hmm. quite wrap my head around where the exact influences are from. I think I know that when they were recording this album, they were listening to a lot of American bands, actually. Okay. Um, so, like, Steely Dan and, weirdly enough, people like ZZ Top. <laughs> really? <laughs> and, and, like, Bruce Springsteen. Uh, they, were also, they were also listening to a lot of a uh, band from Scotland called the Blue Nile. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I don't know if you've ever heard them. I would recommend uh, checking them out. Um, so I think that that maybe painted a little bit of like the atmospheric quality of not just the working hour, but this entire album. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, like the closest influence I could think specifically for working hour would maybe be Steely Dan, and that's probably just because there's sort of like a jazz rock feel to it. Sure, sure. Uh, um, the uh, the motif from this song is actually from uh, one of their uh, B-sides, uh, which was uh, the B-side, which wound up being the B-side Head Over Heels. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the piano motif is from a song called When In Love With A Blind Man, oh, which yeah. was uh, one of their B-sides. And this is actually one of the only songs that features a writing credit from uh, their then drummer, Manny Elias, Interesting. who was also the drummer on The Herding. Um, and you can kind of tell, especially like in that intro, which is a very long intro, but I personally don't think it's an overlong intro. I think it works for this song very well. Yeah. Um, you can definitely hear the influence of the drummer in the song. It's basically like they just sort of like took the piano motif and then took the drumming from Manny Elias, put those two things together, mm-hmm. and then had Roland Orsbull come up with the lyrics and a little bit more melody. Sure, um, sure. And I, I really like the hook in this song, too, the, the actual chorus. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's nice, and this is another one of those songs. Again, think of think of how albums were structured, pop albums in the 1980s, and realize that this is an album where the first two tracks are both six and a half minutes long. Mm-hmm. Like that is wild to me. I can't even wrap my head around that. And the working hour lyrically too is. Um almost like a protest against their record label at the time. Uh, that line, we're paid by those, we're paid by those who learned from our mistakes is very, um, I think very direct actually. Wow. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I there's didn't even a lot of that like, before. Fr- <laughs> yeah. There's like a lot of frustration and, uh, I think that it, God, it just, I, I really like the lyrics to this song. This is one of my favorite songs of all time, not just tears for fears, but this is definitely up there. And I think it is for a lot of fans. It's definitely a fan favorite. Um, they recently have reintroduced it to some of their set lists, Ooh. usually when they're on the West Coast. Um, so I don't know if they're going to bring a sax player with them to Detroit. Here's hey, hoping. We, we can get them one. Not. There's a great jazz club called Cliff Bells. It's uh, you know, it's, it's just a few miles away from where they're playing. We'll get them a new oh. sax player. Well, there you go. <laughs> just show up at the sax player and say, hey, guys, yeah. here you go. There you go. I know you didn't rehearse this song, but uh, just... Just do it. He's really good. He's been playing sax for like 60 years. He's great. Don't worry about it. Yeah, I'm sure that would work out. Um, and I th- Oh, go ahead. No, I, just, I think that this song also has a lot of influence on a lot of contemporary indie pop rock mm-hmm. um, because you're hearing a lot more, at least in the last few years, a lot more of that like swirly saxophone and I hate to say like cheesy kind of saxophone is like reappearing. Sure, um, sure. 
I immediately think of like Destroyer right away. Yep. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Sorry, I keep interrupting you. What's what's no, more no, of no. your take? Uh, I I totally agree with you with kind of their influence and uh, especially the saxophone and that kind of almost like neo film noir esque uh, you know soundscape type of stuff kind of finding its way into contemporary indie rock. And the other thing I was thinking about too is how this song leans really heavily on that vocal hook too. Like it's so powerful and this album and, and this song, especially it reminds me of uh, a lot of things that are happening with uh, independent music, like groups like Zola Jesus. Oh, yeah. she, she does a lot of the same thing where she'll layer electronics and then uh, just has this beautiful, powerful voice that just kind of booms over everything. And after listening to tears for fears for two straight weeks, I'm like, Oh wow. Now I know where she's getting it from. Like it makes perfect sense to me. So definitely see the contemporary influences. Um, there is, sorry, I'm looking down. I probably, probably should actually speak into the mic. There's an alternate version of this that is on the, the version of the album that I, I have, which by the way, uh, somebody who listened to the first podcast. And if you haven't listened to the first podcast, go back and listen to that. It's, it's really good. We promised. Uh, but someone contacted Steve Coleman and he was like, Hey, how is Steve Cuff listening to these albums for the first time? You know, does he does he have a good setup or something like that? And I, I promise you, I have really nice studio headphones, and I have listened to the albums on on nice studio headphones. Uh, I also, but I've, I've been listening to it other context too. Like I, I listen at the gym, and like I know that everybody wants to rule the world is the best song to jog to. Like it's the perfect pace. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I've been listening to it in all kinds of different capacities. But anyways, the version of the album, <clears throat> excuse me. That I have, it's got like a two-minute version of the working hour. It's called like the piano version or something. Right. Yeah. Have you heard that? Yeah. Yeah. It's um. I mean, first of all, it's mislabeled. I know it's always called the piano version, which is insane because there's no piano in it. Yeah, I thought that was. I was going to ask about that actually. Also in my notes, where's the piano in the piano version? <laughs> right. It like it turns out that it was like it was a bonus track on a limited edition cassette version of the album okay. that was only released in the UK and um, it was a hidden track on that cassette as well mm-hmm. and to me that version of the song has always just sounded like a mistake <laughs> like they accidentally tacked it on the end of something because it's just the vocal track mm-hmm. and the uh, the chords to the synthesizer yeah um, yeah it, it just it feels like like a demo, basically, which I'm guessing that's that's probably what it is, or you know, mm. it's it's missing some layers. And I definitely think, I mean, it's it's only two minutes long, or maybe like two and a half minutes, but it, it's it's not as good as the album version. But I think a lot more of that indie rock, contemporary indie rock sound that actually comes through more in the piano version. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. It sounds like if you replaced the singer's voice with you know, Zola Jesus or something, I, I would assume it was a Zola Jesus song. Like, I would never have guessed it would be a cover if she played that song or something like that. Um, yeah, it's just, I, I don't know, It's it feels like a contemporary indie rock song that's just somehow recorded by Tears for Fears in the 1980s. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, well, we I guess we should probably get into the next smash hit, huh? Yeah, let's, let's do it. Was Working Hour, was it a single at all? No, it was never a single. Oh, um, that's why it's the fan fave. Yeah. Okay, here we go. So, this, of course, I think everybody's probably familiar with this one, right? 
Get ready to rant. Dennis Miller. <laughs> I really like this song a lot. I don't yeah. care if it's overplayed. I don't care if it just reminds me of like the opening credit sequence of every 1980s teen movie. I it's it's or, a great or song. Or closing credit sequence. Like it was in Real Genius. Hey, there you go. I didn't even know that. I, I just assumed if I was a producer in the year like 1985 or something or 1986, I would have this song in my credits, opening or closing, one or the other. Although, interestingly, did you ever see the movie In a World, uh, which is just like a, I think, like maybe a year or two old? I'm familiar with it. It's the, it, it's about like the woman who wants to be like the voice of movie trailers. Is that right? Yeah. Well, she's the, it's Blake Bell. Like she wrote, directed, and stars in it. And she plays the daughter of a prominent voiceover actor or the guy who does all the trailers in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And it's her trying to kind of carve out her own career path as doing the same thing. Um, and it's interesting because um, Everybody Wants to Rule the World actually plays a pivotal role in that movie. Um, at one point, she's singing at a karaoke bar, and then uh, it actually plays over the closing credits during like the final montage of the film. Huh. Um, so I, I don't really know why that was worth mentioning, but it just... I mean, this is like a movie that came out nearly 30 years after the song mm-hmm. was a big hit, and... It's one of those songs that doesn't sound like it's 30 years old. Nope, not at all. Not at all. And like I'm convinced if this was released commercially this would still be as big of a hit now as it would have been as it or as big of a hit as it was in 1985. I, yeah, I agree completely. And actually, you know, the AV Club Undercover series if if you're a listener and you're not familiar, uh the AV Club chooses a list of just like random songs. And then they ask bands to come in, and the bands get to pick from the list of songs, and they get to cover a song. So uh, Everybody Wants to Rule the World was on there. Maybe it was like 2012, 2013, something like if, that? I think it was It was 2010, I think. It was the very first episode oh, was of it? Baby okay. Club Undercover. Okay, and uh, Ted Leo decided to cover uh, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. And I absolutely love his cover song, and it's so funny, too, because it, it fits his style so well that... Again, if I wasn't already familiar with the song, I'd be like, oh, that's just a Ted Leo song. And they actually, not only did they play for AV Club, but they, they went out on tour, and I guess it was part of their set for a while, too, which is really cool. Wow. Yeah. And uh, uh, it's it's interesting, though, because I think the Ted Leo cover is great, uh, but if you ever want a good laugh, just try and watch some people trying to play drums along to this song on YouTube, because <laughs> it, is, it is really funny. They just, they can't except the fact that it's just like a simple, consistent beat. And so either halfway through, they sort of lose their place and get behind the beat a little bit, uh, or they just start adding in ridiculous fills, which is never, never a good idea. Don't do that. (laughs) It wasn't until recently, uh, I don't care to admit how recently it was, but like I just had found out that the entire, it's just a Lindrum throughout the entire song. There's actually no drumming in the studio version. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, once I figured it out, it's plainly obvious, um, no matter how real it actually sounds. Mm -hmm. Um, But the uh, actual drum like the actual drumming is as uh, influenced by a song by this British funk band called Lynx and uh Tears of Fears like Roland Orzabal just recently admitted this um just a few months ago when he was on the Comedy Bang Bang podcast and uh Reggie Watts is like telling him like oh god like that 
that rhythm, like that the timing, the time signature is just like unheard of, like mm-hmm. in, in like especially like a white British pop song. And he, Roland Orzabal, is basically just like, yeah, I took that from this song called Throw Away the Key by this band called Lynx. And uh, just, that just kind of got me started into programming the song, and they just were, sort of went from there. <laughs> <laughs> like, they kind of treated it as like just this throwaway song. And it, historically, actually, Everybody Wants to Rule the World barely made it onto the final record. Oh, wow. Um, it was the last song that they wrote and recorded um, and a lot of talk goes around how like every single song on this album took months to record. It was very labor intensive. Mm-hmm. Um, but like this song only took them like two weeks and it only took them two weeks because they had to like fly to Munich to record the vocals for some reason. Uh, <laughs> hey, German vocals, man. Yeah. That, uh, that Sennheiser microphone in Germany was really, uh, the only place that could withhold the strength <laughs> of Kurt Smith's pipes. Um, but yeah, this is, um, I mentioned how like the hurting is like their only unimpeachable album. I feel like everybody wants to rule the world. Even if you hate tears for fears, I don't think it's possible to hate this song. I've never met anybody who doesn't at least like everybody wants to rule the world. Sure. Sure. It's one of those pop songs. It's completely universal. It's, you can't, yeah, you're right. You can't hate it. It kind of reminds, I guess the nineties equivalent would be, uh, you get what you give by the new radicals. Like, I don't think, is there a single person alive who can just be like, that's the worst fucking song. I fucking hate that song. Like nobody would ever do that. No. Uh, but yeah, I mean, what, what, what can you say that hasn't really been said about this? It's just, it's a really good tight pop song. And if you want to, if you kids, if you're, if you're listening right now and you go, I want to be a musician, I want to be a, a platinum selling artist like tears for fears. Write good pop songs like this. That's a good place to start. And I think for me personally, it just speaks to my fandom of the band. The fact that I still can't get enough of this song. I could listen to it hundreds of times on repeat, mm-hmm. and I and I have <laughs> before. I probably did earlier this week, and I still just I can't get enough of it. Like even though like I'm not like, and I'm proud of that. Like I'm not gonna say like, oh, I only do the deep cuts. I only listen to Working Hour, and that's it. Like <laughs> no, this is like just as good <laughs> absolutely absolutely and i know that i can i can run a mile in uh two rotations of this song because that's what i do <laughs> that's, that's my that's my jogging speed that's a pretty good time yeah it's not too bad not too it's bad. under nine minutes that's pretty good yeah especially for someone who's woefully out of shape like myself so <laughs> i'm getting there i'm getting there and tears for fears is helping see not only am i learning a lot about a band i'm finding a new band that i really enjoy but they're also getting me physically fit so you know what can't tears for fears do uh steve let's talk about the next track a little bit and i believe oh yeah this is this is the one i really want to talk about let's talk about mother's talk i gotta bring it up here uh sorry i got all these people texting me and i'm trying to use my phone as the uh the jukebox here all right there we go way to go sean glennis yeah thanks sean shout out to sean quit texting us can we talk about this intro a little bit? Yeah, what do you what do you got? Okay. Oh, oh I'll let it finish. Okay. First of all, I love this song. This song is so much fun. Yeah. It's like I, was this was this a hit at all? Was this a single? I don't remember ever hearing it on the it, radio or anything. 
it was released as a single in the UK and Canada and maybe a few other territories and countries. Okay. Um, this version of the song was never released as a single in the US, though. Mm. They actually wound up completely re-recording the song for the US single release in 1986. Oh. Which it's um, much different. Like a, almost all the it's stripped of like almost all of its electronic sort of influence. That's and it's just the best part. Completely live. I know. Um, which, and I always prefer the original version personally. Um, yeah, this, I've like, have, will find myself every few years, like re falling in love with mother's talk. Yeah. Mother's talk. It's arguably, I, I would argue the most 1980s sounding song you could possibly listen to. Like if you had to encapsulate this decade and what music was like, uh, or pop music was like, at least you could just play this song and people would be like, okay, I get it. And you would, you would get it. <laughs> you would totally understand the 1980s. Like, it's so good because not only does it nail that feel and everything, and it's so much fun, but there's so much going on here. And this is another song too, where if I'm a hip hop producer, I'm just salivating over this track. <laughs> yeah. I am interested in the fact that this song has not been sent to my knowledge has really never been sampled before. I, yeah, I, I couldn't find anything cause I know I said I wouldn't do research or anything and I've mostly stuck to that, but I had to know, I was like, okay, this, who has sampled this? And the reason why I had to look was because I was convinced 100% convinced that the intro to this song was the same as the intro to Ninja Rap by Vanilla Ice from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 <laughs> soundtrack. <laughs> and it's not. It's not the same. I was wrong. My, my you know, childhood memories have betrayed me. I guess that happens sometimes. But I will say it is strikingly similar. And we know Vanilla Ice, uh, he's, he's never been coy about, you know, stealing from other artists and, and saying it's not sampling. So I'm just throwing it out there. It's a possibility. Uh, but yeah, this is, there's so much like late 80s hip hop influence here. Or I guess this probably could have influenced late 80s hip hop. And this is another track too, where I want to talk a little bit about the B side, which I cannot, what is the name? Oh, Empire Building, which that's the B side to this, this single, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, Empire yeah. Building, if, if you are an aspiring hip-hop producer, listen. listen. I, what are you doing listening to a Tears for Fears podcast, first of all? Second, you could honestly just rap over this song, and you would have, like, a hit rap single. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, I am. I, I'm a really big fan of Empire Building as well, which mm. uh, that song itself is actually a sample of... <laughs> Basically, just a sample of a drum intro to a Simple Minds song. Really? Huh. I don't know which Simple Minds song, but uh, I think it's even kind of like an in-joke because I think that a lot of people compared Tears for Fears to Simple Minds, especially oh, like in the early 80s. Yeah. Um, I really don't think they had nearly that much in common as much as people like to think that they did. Mm. Um but uh, I think it was almost like an in-joke. It's like, all right, we'll fucking sample Simple Minds and uh, just come up with this like three-minute song based on like a two-second sample, just looping the entire time. Well, I guess the other thing, too, is was this a common thing for pop groups to do in the 80s? Like to actually sample other pop artists and, and, and use their songs? Like I, I, I don't know. I, I know that was part of hip-hop culture, and it, obviously it still is, and now 
that sort of blood over into contemporary pop music, but I get the feeling that that wasn't something that a lot of groups did back then. No, to my knowledge, no. I think that this is a very tears for fears type thing to do. Um, and I think that their major influence at the time was listening to Brian Eno and David Byrne, uh, mm. specifically the, uh, my life in the bush of ghosts record, um, where basically that entire album is just samples of radio clips and mm -hmm. recordings. So I think that they're just like spending a lot of time in the studio after they finish up the hurting, they listen to this Brian Eno, David Byrne record, and they're just kind of like going crazy, just trying to splice things together and experiment. And I think that that, and that definitely gave way to mother's talk specifically, mm -hmm. which I believe was, if not the first, one of the first songs that they recorded for this album. In fact, it was released as a single, I think, at least six or seven months before Songs from the Big Cherry even came out. Uh, that is in uh, the UK. Mm. So, um, yeah, I think... Uh, and going back to Mother's Talk, too, there's a lot to say, a lot more than I thought I had to say, but uh, sure, sure. The, they actually sampled Barry Manilow. Really? Which wow. isn't like that widely reported, but like that string that like, you know, that did it, did it. Mm -hmm. I don't know from what song, but it's from some Barry Manilow performance that they sampled these strings from. That's wild. Um, I don't yeah. even know how, like, how can you listen to something like just, you just hear strings in a Barry Manilow song. And you're like, that's it. And you just take, like, I, I wouldn't even, my brain doesn't even work that way. <laughs> I can't even imagine how they did that. Yeah. Um, and then another little trivia or i guess personal history about this song too about a year ago i was at this club in chicago called neos i think they just closed but uh oh, they had like a retro dance party and you could request songs but it was really hard to get a request in because there's like hundreds of people there it's packed and every song has to have a music video so on a whim i requested mother's talk by tears for fears mm-hmm then the DJ totally played it, and the music video is playing. And I'm the only person out there, just like yeah, just you know, <laughs> really getting into it. And I remember there were like looks on some people's faces, and they had been dancing to pretty obscure stuff all night. Then this Tears for Fears song comes on, which is easily their most danceable song. Oh yeah, by a country uh, mile on this record, and like people are just like, what the hell is this? It's like, <laughs> They just expected Vanilla Ice to burst out and then the Ninja Turtles to fight Super Shredder, right? Yeah, maybe they were severely disappointed I that guess. it wasn't the Ninja Rap. Hey, it's their loss. This is a great song. Can't uh, you can't you can't hate it? And then Tears for Fears does my favorite thing that they love to do, which is they have one track where they where just all this energy and excitement, and you're like, yeah, and then they just immediately pull out the rug from under you and just. <laughs> So this is this is like a companion song to Working Hour in a lot of ways. It's got that same uh, kind of loungy uh, jazziness to it, you know. Feel like I'm in a back room somewhere and it's filled with smoke and <laughs> there's some guy wailing away on a saxophone. Uh, so you said that Working Hour is like a big fan favorite. Does this song kind of fall into that as well? I believe. Yeah. I don't know. Um it was actually released as a single, I think, just in the UK and Ireland. Um, and that single is actually a re-recorded version as well. I think they just uh, edited a live version of the song. Mm. And f I know for me, personally, if I'm counting myself amongst the throngs of super fans, sure, <laughs> sure. which is huge, by the way, 
<clears throat> um, <laughs> the uh, I, I've had a complicated relationship with the song because I really, I actually really like the lyrics. Yeah, sure. I um, just I'm I can't. I think part of it's because when I was um, doing some research in grad school for a paper about Billy Joel. Mm-hmm. Of all people, um, I came across this like old Rolling Stone issue from like it was like 1985, the year in review. Mm-hmm. And Rolling Stone talks about like the biggest albums of the year, and they do a re-review of songs from the Big Chair. Oh, and, and they kind of rip it to shreds. I think just because it was at an era where there's just like all these like baby boomer music reviewers who think like nothing is going to be as good as the '60s. Sure. So sure. anything that's brand new and popular just sucks. But they talk about the song "I Believe" and they say it's like listening <laughs> to Roland Orzabal give himself a four and a half minute piano lesson. Oh Jesus! Really? <laughs> And every time I hear this song now, I think about that. And I don't think that that's a fair criticism, but just because it is so sparse and played so slow, it's just like, dong, 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 dong. And I can't help but think that whenever I hear the song now. Mm -hmm. Um, So in a perfect world, I would think that they would have maybe even added a – I mean, I think they still could have kept that very intimate atmosphere of the song, but I think they could have added a little bit more to it. Mm-hmm. Maybe like a upright bass or something just yeah. to at least kind of like not distract us, but just to kind of add more, I don't know, feeling to the song because I think it just – it always seems like it's missing something. Yeah, it's a little bit flat. And it's interesting too because a lot of times I feel like Tears for Fears tries to you know really – put a lot into these songs especially uh coming off a mother's talk where there's so much going on and so many different layers and then just to you know to get into this where there's it's so sparse but it doesn't need to be for once it's like you know what you guys can put like 50 more layers of samples on top of this if you want to that's fine just go ahead and do it you know (laughs) don't you see that piano and there is a moment in the song that i really like though where you kind of like gets into this mode where he really starts to sing and like all of a sudden the sax kicks in as he's like it's like oh yeah i think it's like right after he says if you're bristling while you hear this song and then the saxophone just kicks in and i think that that's a really beautiful moment but it just the song has never completely worked for me mm-hmm. um i it's not something that if i usually when i listen to songs from the big chair i'm actually listening to it on vinyl and uh, if you're doing that, then this is the first song on side two. So at least after you hear Mother's Talk, you can take a deep breath, <laughs> flip, the, flip the record over, and then it kind of makes sense that this is the first song on the second side, mm-hmm. um, especially because it ramps up right away after this. Yeah, and this is another reason why this song is kind of weird in a lot of ways, because not only does it is it does it follow a song like Mother's Talk, but then we get into this trio of songs at the end that are, I don't know. I think you mentioned it earlier. It's kind of like tears for fears goes prog. Is that fair? (laughs) Yeah, I would say so. So the next song it's called broken. Hold on. Let me bring that up. Hey, there we go. I'm getting better at this. I'm telling you, I really like this song a lot, a lot, a lot. Yeah. It's, it's closer to sort of the earlier like post-punk stuff that was on the first record, I think. And the bass player is phenomenal. If the drummer was like the secret star on the first Tears for Fears album, then I think the bass player is the unsung hero of Songs from the Big Chair. 
Uh, it's uh, Kurt Smith, and it's kind of funny you say that because um, this is sort of the first album where Kurt Smith is slowly receding into the background a little bit. Really? I, at least I would say that. Historically, I would say that because mm-hmm. even though he still has the lead on probably the biggest hit single on that album outside of Shout and Head Over Heels, yeah. um, he only sings one more song on this album. And you can kind of tell, get a little bit of a sense that Roland Orzabal is slightly, is slowly starting to take, take control of the band. And I think he does so completely by the next record. But, uh, um, it, so it's interesting that you say that you really notice the bass playing because, like, that's what he's still responsible for. And I, and I do think, too, that Kurt Smith is actually a very underrated bass player. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that's not, I mean, a lot of times, People say, "Well, you know, a, a good bass guitar is it's it's felt, it's not heard. Like it's it's there and it adds to the song, but it's not something that sticks out." And this, it's not like he's doing like crazy bass solos every thirty seconds or something. But like the bass lines really stick out to me. They're just very inventive and really interesting, and they fit so well with the music. Uh, so yeah, I, I love this song. I absolutely love it. I, I'm pretty sure it wasn't a single. It doesn't it doesn't really sound like a single to me. So I, I don't know um, how much. Do they play the song live frequently? Um, they, I mean, they did when this album came out. Like, and they would usually play like broken segueing into head over heels, like mm-hmm. it goes on the album. Um, but it definitely was dropped from the set list after that. After these, the big chair era. In fact, when I saw them in Minneapolis, it was their first tour together in mm-hmm. 2004, since like 1990. Um, Kurt Smith makes this joke. He's like, yeah, we'll be playing a lot of new things, but we'll play some old songs. Uh, but that just is, doesn't mean that you should expect to hear the uh, Broken. Oh, <laughs> So it's like the joke, like, yeah, we're not going to play that piece of crap ever again. Wow. Uh, that sucks. Well, I'll tell you what. Kurt, Roland, if you're listening, play Broken for me, man. You're too hard on yourself. It's a good song. It's a really good song. <laughs> uh, also, the bass line, just, just going back to the idea of how some of their, their work parallels more contemporary music, uh, the bass line, it almost reminds me of Tool, in a way. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Which is, uh, what's, what's that song? I think the album was called Lateralis, or maybe the song was called Lateralis. It's the one where the bass line's like, Oh, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, that's the bass line in this song kind of reminds me of that in a way. Yeah, yeah, I think that, it, I, yeah, I don't remember the name of that song. I almost want to say it's the titular track off of Lateralist, but I think it's called something else. Yeah, something anyway. weird and, yeah, I don't know. But, it, yeah, it, it's crazy, though, because, I mean, I, I mentioned Tool just now, and then we were talking about Nine Inch Nails last week, which I think we're going to get into more of that in a little bit, too. Uh, it's so weird because Tool and Nine Inch Nails are definitely not two bands where I go, oh, yeah, you can definitely hear the Tears for Fears in them. <laughs> There is a pretty direct link between Tool and Tears for Fears, though. Really? It comes uh, later on in their career. Actually, we'll we'll literally see that link when we see them live in uh, Detroit, because they uh, currently are touring with uh, Karina Around, Mm -hmm. who is probably best known for um, partnering up with Mayor James Keenan in uh, his Pussifier project. Oh, Wow. Did I say Pussifier? Pussifer. Pussifer? Pussifier? I, that's that's really interesting. Wow. It all comes full circle. We didn't even plan that. This is good. This is really good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look at that, man. Podcasting. It's happening. Uh, okay. 
let's talk a little bit about the next track. Uh, this is another one where I guess what else can you really say about it? <laughs> it's I mean, it is it is what it is. It's a great song, but it's it's another one that everybody knows. It's my favorite karaoke song. It is, and you do a damn good version of it. And it also, if I was making an 80s teen movie, this is another credit song that I would definitely use. Yeah, like Donnie Darko? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Don't remind me of that. Uh, but yeah, another great song. And I have I actually have a question about this because, I mean, obviously it's a smash hit. What really can we say? The version that I have, it's it says it's live. And there's like applause at the end, but it doesn't sound like a live song. What's going on, Steve Coleman? Well, if uh, it should be credited as Head Over Heels slash Broken Live. Yeah, that's that's what it says. And for the album version of Head Over Heels, the version that appears on Songs from the Big Chair, at the end of the song, after he's done saying Time Flies, there's a tag at the end, which is a reprise of Broken. Mm-hmm. And it's actually that version of Broken is a live recording. Uh, from a tour they did to promote the Way You Are single back in late 1983. Okay. That so makes more sense like, then. Yeah. So it kind of gives you a bit of the live experience because that's how they played that specific song live. They always started with the album version of Broken, segue into Head Over Heels, and then segue into that Broken reprise. Okay. Uh, that makes much more sense because I was sitting here listening to this and I'm like, how is this live? There's no way Head Over Heels is live. That, that's it's just it's too tight. That's not possible. Yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> okay, I'm glad I'm not crazy. I mean, I, I was I was ready to bow down to Tears for Fears. Tears for Fears is you know the golden gods of musicianship, but uh, wow, that's okay. That makes much more sense now. Thank you. But again, this kind of goes back to that idea of okay, here's this big smash hit song. How did they, like, I can't imagine their record label was happy with them deciding to break it up and add that little live snippet at the end, right? It's I don't such think a weird decision. Yeah, and I know that, like, when it was, this was like, I think the record company gave them the green light to record songs from the big chair based on the strength of Head Over Heels. Okay. And I think that they were so antagonistic at this point. And there's references to the battles they were having with the record label all throughout the album. Even in uh, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, there's the line that goes, so sad they had to fade it. That's actually a reference to the record label forcing them to fade out Shout at like the 620-some mark because they wanted Shout to be like an eight- or nine-minute song. Oh, wow. So (laughs) I think in a way maybe like – and I think that they're very, and still to this day, like Tears for Fears is very much about the album as a complete work more than they are about the singles. Sure, sure. Um, so I think that Head Over Heels sort of fits into this like thing that they just wanted to have at the end. They wanted to be part of this like prog rock suite. And uh, if you ever hear the song on the radio, I mean, there's maybe a few like album rock stations that'll play the full track with the broken tag at the end, but mm-hmm. they do have an edited version of the single that goes out with just basically gets rid of the broken tag at the end. Okay, yeah, because I, I didn't I didn't remember the introduction being like that, or, or even like the yeah the the introduction and, and the end. I I didn't remember them being like that from when I would hear the song on the radio as like a kid and stuff. So that's why it was weird when I listened to the album. I'm like, what the f- – did I not know this? <laughs> it, and it, it, again, a very odd choice. Very odd choice. But I like it because it's them 
flexing their artistic muscle, which is something that really comes through here. It's like, oh yeah, here's this perfect pop song, and we're gonna we're gonna bookend it with some stuff that isn't exactly radio friendly. And I I respect that. Uh, so let's get to, I guess, what would be technically the last song on this album, mm-hmm. which is where Tears for Fears goes full prog. Is that is that fair to say? It's a complete left field thing. Um, I think there were a lot of people, probably especially like American teenagers, who bought this record, thinking it's like the pop record of the year, and then this is the last thing they hear, mm-hmm. and then we don't hear from Tears for Fears for another four years. <laughs> that is, oh my god. Yeah, hopefully, if you're a teen and you bought that when you bought this in you know the mid 1980s, you're already into drugs because you need it for this track. It's like it's like an ambient soundscape, basically. And then it gets kind of like Lion King at the end. Like, what are they saying exactly? It's, um, nobody's ever really solved it. I think the only person who probably knows is Roland Orzabal. Um Okay. And this song, it's um, basically the work of Ian Stanley, who I think is a bit of an unsung hero. Uh, mm-hmm. He and Manny Elias were both sort of like two, I mean, they were, Part of Tears for Fears, uh, obviously they weren't the image, but they were very important to that sound, and uh, they were in all the music videos at the time, too. Uh, Ian Stanley was the guy who basically got Tears for Fears to record in the first place. Uh, This entire album is actually recorded at the Wool Hall Studios, which is the studio that Ian Stanley owned. It's basically his house that they're recording this entire album at. So they go from Abbey Road for the herding to this, like, intimate cottage in the middle of the west country of england interesting and uh so this is like his composition like basically the first half like that very ambient almost like new age record is all him yeah and then once it gets to the midway part of the song all of a sudden you hear like the roland orzable part of the song start to creep in and like i said it sort of has that lion king or like very like <laughs> and it's it's basically it's broken Spanish. Um, I've okay. heard people say it means birthday gar- girl. It's not your fault. But I've had native speakers of the Spanish language listen to the song and they still can't figure out what the hell he's saying. Has anybody Another ever asked interesting... Roland Orzabal in like an interview before? Not to my knowledge. Okay. Um, I think, that, and if they did, he probably gave him like a really flippant answer. He's probably oh. trying to be like. Roland Orsbill is like a very strange dude. <laughs> um, at least Fair as far enough. as like interviews, like he's like very, um, he has a very dry sense of humor. I think people can never tell if he's joking or if he's actually telling the truth. Oh. But I th- think to most people, if you read enough, you can kind of tell he is always joking around. Oh damn! He's it. like, he's like a like a like John Lennon, but like more sinister in that way. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um. And actually, uh, in the song "Listen," there's the. It sounds like it's a woman singing. Yeah, like the yeah. Ah, like it's actually Roland Orzabal. Oh wow! Because there, like there's another crazy ass vocal. There's one other song on this okay. album. I can't remember which one it is, but there's there's a woman singing on that too. And I was going to ask if that was or like if that was the same woman, but maybe it's just Roland Orzabal. He's got some range. The guy's got pipes. Yeah, and, like, this record, too, like, I mean, you can kind of tell in the hurting, like, he definitely has that style, but I think, like, his voice, like, hasn't cracked quite yet, mm-hmm. and, like, by the time he gets the songs from the big chair, like, you definitely can tell how his voice has matured even more, he's a much better singer, and then 
once we get to the next record, like he sounds like almost a completely different person. I mean, you can tell it's him, but it's just like mm-hmm. strange, like how much his voice grows from album to album. Like Kurt Smith always sounds the same, which isn't a knock on him at all. But like, yeah, it's, I think it's one of the craziest voices in pop rock music history. Huh? Yeah, that's that's really interesting. This is a, it's a very strange song for this album to end on. And yeah, yeah it, if you're listening <laughs> out there and uh, you know what the Lion King words are, let us know. Anybody, interpret this, please. <laughs> it's just like almost like a like a pre-smooth Carlos Santana guitar sound too. Yeah, oh yeah, the do 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 do. There you go. Wow. Yeah, that's that's one hell of a way to end an album. That's for sure. Yeah. And it just it sounds like there's like a chorus of like a hundred people there too. Yeah, it yeah. just sounds so big and massive, mm-hmm. and they're just doing it in this tiny. I don't know if it was tiny, but just like this little cottage in the UK. That's wild. That's absolutely wild. Well, yeah, it, this is it's a hell of a record. It's a hell of a record, and I really enjoyed the hurting, and I enjoyed this just as much, if not more. Um. It's it's such an interesting listen, especially once I dove into the B sides, <laughs> and it made me like more than ever. I just wish Tears for Fears record label was like, you know what, do whatever the hell you want, guys. We don't care because there is some crazy, crazy stuff that they put on the B sides to their singles. So let me get my notes here. I got my I got my favorites. Uh, there's <laughs> three songs in particular. That I, I really, really enjoyed. Uh, one is the uh, the titular Big Chair. Uh, yeah, and then the quasi-title track. The quasi-title track. And the other one is Sea Song. And the other one is called Broken Revisited. <laughs> I love these songs. I love them so much. I felt like I was, like, if you listen to those three songs, and do this. If you're listening right now, go on YouTube, buy the album, whatever you got to do. Find Big Chair, Sea Song, Broken Revisited. Tell me it doesn't sound like you're listening to the soundtrack to a 70s Italian slasher film. It's just... Oh. And it gets progressively more terrifying, too, I think. If you start with Sea Song, you're like, okay. And then Big Chair, you're like, oh, this is getting a little sinister. And then you get to Broken Revisited, you're like, oh, my God. It's <laughs> terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. And it kind of reminded me of uh, Prisoner from the first record, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Same scary stuff, man. Well, um, if you're interested in some of the history, Steve, I am. Uh, the uh, well, first we'll start with Sea Song. I I love Sea Song too. Um, it's actually um, it's a cover of a Robert Wyatt song. Oh, and uh, for those of you who don't know who Robert Wyatt is, he used to be in a prog band from the '60s and '70s called Soft Machine. He was a drummer, and then he split from them. And he actually like fell out of a window and became a paraplegic. Oh, Jesus! And uh, but like just sort of like went into the studio by himself and came out with this album called Rock Bottom, which is uh, I would recommend it to you too, Cuff. But like it's just like this. I have never heard anything like it before. It's a very he's a very unique talent. Uh, uh, look him up, Robert Wyatt. Um, but the f- the first song on his first album is called Sea Song. It sounds nothing like the version that Tears for Fears recorded for the, which was the B side of I Believe. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, going back to I Believe, I didn't mention this before. 
that song was actually written with the idea that Roland Orzabal was going to present it to Robert Wyatt to record. He actually dedicates the song to him in the liner notes. Oh, wow. Um, and I think Sea Song and like Robert Wyatt was a big influence on him. Um, anyhow, where, where was I going with this? Um, anyway, the cover is just great. It's, um, it's kind of like what I wish I believe was <laughs> on the I, album. I think that's, that, that's fair. Um, and it just, uh, even though he didn't write the lyrics, just like, they're amazing. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and it's just, he sings it, I think just perfectly. It's, um, one of my favorite B sides of theirs for sure. If yeah. not just like one of my favorite recordings that they've ever done. Well, and, and I'm not, <laughs> I, I know, I know a little bit about music, but I, I'm not, you know, uh, Mr. Super genius here, but I don't know what key this song is in. But it's so unorthodox for a pop song. Like it's it's really dissonant. It's almost Nick Cave esque, I guess I would say. Yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah, it's it's such a cool song, and I was just like, damn, I wish this was on the album. Like, could you imagine like a kid hears Shout or um, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, and they go out and they buy songs in the big chair, and and they hear something like that? Oh my god. I just, I, yeah, I, I wish, I wish more people could hear this stuff. And you can go, go on YouTube, buy this album, listen to these B sides. They're just it, everything you think you know about Tears for Fears. It changes when you listen to these songs. Yeah, it changed for me too in a big way when I first heard them, yeah. uh, and I was already a fan at that point. Could you? Okay, so, so Big Chair. That's another song that's it's very Nine Inch Nails esque, I would say. But the one I really want to talk about a little bit before we wrap this up, could you just talk a little bit about Broken Revisited? W- what is it exactly? It just sounds like another it just sounds like a song like Broken probably played backwards. What is going on? Well, Broken Revisited, specifically the version that we're discussing is um it's actually comes from the song called We Are Broken, which is just like the version you hear on songs from the big chair, which is just called Broken. The song has a long history. Okay, <laughs> I should just okay. say that right off the bat. Um, but we, the song We Are Broken was the B-side to uh, Pale Shelter from uh, The Hurting. From the hurting. Oh. And uh, they uh, used to play the song live, and I think they – that it was – Considering this was a B-side, a lot of their B-sides worked their way into uh, actual studio LP tracks. Mm-hmm. So obviously, We Are Broken was worked into Broken, and then Broken was worked into Head Over Heels. Um, so I believe we uh, Broken Revisited was just a re-release. It was a B-side for some single off of Songs from the Big Chair, like a special release of one of the singles from Songs okay. from the Big Chair. And um, I think or it was included on the the cassette version of Songs from Big Chair, that limited edition that had the uh, working hour piano version on it. Okay. So this is just like, yeah, they play <laughs> the entire song backwards, <laughs> or at least the the vocals mm-hmm. backwards, and then it kicks into the song again. Yeah. So in a roundabout way, it's just an early version of Broken. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. It's terrifying. And actually, I'm going to just so people understand where we're coming from here. I'm going to I'm going to play a little bit of this. It sounds like a horror movie. It's very scary. Another another song that could easily if if I told someone on the street, "Oh, it's a Scott Walker song." They would believe me. <laughs> I'm going to fast forward it a little bit. Yeah, 
<laughs> like that's that's nightmare fuel. Oh yeah. Then it gets right into, and even this is like okay. So if a horror movie started off like that and then just like went into this for the opening credits, my god. I love this song. I love this album. Steve, I might be falling in love with Tears for Fears. You're falling in love. I can't believe it. I'm actually surprised. I guess this wasn't the result I expected. <laughs> you just um, expected me to hate him. <laughs> well, I, just because like, I feel like Songs from the Big Chair, if anything, could be a very easy album to dislike just because it's so big. Yeah. And But I think there was just like a pattern of a lot of artists in that period of the 80s that came out with albums that were just like packed with hits uh like huey lewis and the news is sports is another example where it's just like over half of the album was released as singles and they were all big hits um but it's interesting that and i'm glad you recognize this that there's just so much more interesting stuff going on in this record as well sure, um, and there's sure. like a lot of there's a lot of darker turns and just like things you wouldn't normally hear on an 80s pop record and i think when tears for fears gets lumped into category the same category as like wham or uh berlin or, or hey dead or alive man or dead or alive like people are just way off yeah which and i i would have been one of those people a few months ago well actually i, I wouldn't have been one a few months ago because i know that you like them so much so they had there had to be something there but uh, before i met you steve coleman i would have lumped them in with those things too if you listen out there and you're not a Tears for Fears fan, I don't know why you're listening to a Tears for Fears podcast, but if that's what you're doing, you're missing out. These first two records, they're good. And then uh, the third one, I guess we'll see. So we're going to be back next week. We're going to be listening to the third Tears for Fears record, and we're going to be talking about it. If you enjoy what you've heard right now, that's great. If you haven't heard the first episode, go back, listen to it. If you dig this podcast... Give us some feedback. Let us know. Uh, you can contact us on Twitter at Optimism Vaccine. You can go to OptimismVaccine.com and you can comment on this podcast. You can go to iTunes and you can rate us and you can write a review because that helps other people find this podcast. So other Tears for Fears fans and other people who just want to hear two guys talk about Tears for Fears because that's kind of their thing for whatever reason, they can find us too. These are all things you need to do. If you have questions for us, if there's something you want to ask uh, Steve Coleman or me, Steve Cuff, you want to ask me a question, uh, if you want to say, hey, Steve Cuff, you're an idiot and I hate your opinions on this band that you only started listening to two weeks ago, that's great. Let us know. <laughs> Let us know. Follow us on Twitter. Yeah, at Optimism Vaccine for the Optimism Vaccine Twitter. You can follow me at Steve Cuff. And you can follow me, Stephen Coleman, at Colmania, that's K-O-H-L-M-A-N-I-A, at, on Twitter. There you go. And if you want to send us an email, that's optimismvaccine at gmail.com. Send us your questions. We'll, we'll, we'll give you a shout-out on the air. You'll be famous. All right, Steve, thanks again, and uh, we will be back next week. 